Welcome to Subtitles, where we spike the canon in music and movies. In each episode, we will offer up replacements for each title in the top 100 of a well-known, well-regarded ranking, and we'll walk away with a pair of subtitles, which we think deserve more acclaim and to which attention must be paid. I'm Matt, and I'm replacing the top 100 entries on Spin Magazine's 2015 list of the top 300 albums from 1985 until 2015, starting with number one and working down. And I'm Tim. I'm replacing the entries on the 2007 AFI 100 Years 100 Movies list, starting with number 100 and working up. And once we finish this off, we'll do some fun activities with the new replacement lists we've collaborated on. But before we can get there, we have to do this. Today's title to be replaced is Take Care, Drake's 2011, I was going to say smash hit, but I think all his albums are smash hits at this point, so that seems redundant. <laughs> my my friends at home, <laughs> my hesitance at starting this this episode speaks to our theme for today which is i i just don't understand um so we have major artists of the 2010s that i just don't get it and i don't even know where to start tim where do you want to start it's interesting you say that because i feel like i actually do have thoughts about where to start with this one um good (laughs) so what stood out to me on this listen, because like I'd never actually listened to Drake before. I don't listen to music anyway. Like I was not going to make a lot of time for Drake. So listening to this, the first half of this album was actually like I didn't think it was especially good, but I felt like it was filling this kind of void, which is this kind of crooner, soulful fellas it's not gay to have feelings kind of thing like filling in like this kind of emotional niche for for guys who don't want to admit that they have an emotional niche like a lot of it's like you know i was with this girl and it it didn't work out as well as i wanted to and i'm sort of like recovering from that and it's like it's the kind of like i don't know you can you can trace it back to like 50s 60s romance pop or or maybe back to like people who sing better than drake does not that his voice is bad just like you know we don't we don't come to drake because he's like marvin gay or something so that was that was my impression of the first half and up to like will be fine or so maybe a little bit before that um so that's that's your shot for me take care marvin's room stuff where again you get this this interesting kind of perspective that i wasn't ready for i I didn't know what to expect but i wasn't prepared for something that felt sort of bro social and then the back half of the album felt (laughs) like every other album of this ilk just sort of like this is the one with Nicki minaj this is the one with lil wayne and andre 3000 this is the one with Lil Wayne, but not Andre 3000. Like it was, it was just sort of, it felt tired. Like the beats weren't that interesting. The flow wasn't that interesting. The lyrics didn't do anything for me. And it was, it was very interesting to have this first half of the album that feels like it's after something. And if he had made like one 40 minute album and then one other 40 minute album, I would kind of understand both, but as a whole, I'm not entirely sure I get this. So that's my, that's my Drake 
impression. <laughs> My first ever Drake impression that does not have to do with the Toronto Raptors. Breaking news here, friends. Um, I think one thing that Drake does intuitively understand is what an album should be in the streaming age. And by should be, should be, I mean, should be for success sales. Um, And this thing is way too long. I think most of his albums are way too long. And there's usually like a few, like he knows how to play that, that singles game, but also to just drop tons of content and like keep people engaged and interested and uh, keep them shifting from one thing to another. So like, I think, and this becomes increasingly clear after Take Care, but I do think he just has kind of an innate understanding of what is it to make and release and, and to shape an album in the streaming age when full albums just don't matter as much um and like it's weird because he kind of does this with breadth but also with like here are the major singles and like those are going to be the things that you come for um but here's just a ton of content to listen to and i think that i'm not disparaging that really like there's a certain generosity to like here's an hour here's 90 minutes of music every year every two years like that's incredible output. And like, that's really exciting for fans. Not everyone's got that in them. Yeah. No. Um, trust me. I listen to a ton of artists who take decades between albums and it's, it's frustrating. So like just the steady stream of stuff, you know, whether it's all a plus or not, it's not, but I, there's a certain, like that's a commendable skill on its own. Um, but there's also a kind of generosity to that, especially when, as you were mentioning, like it's basically an open diary across this whole thing. I think, well, we'll get into that. Like that's sort of Drake's MO. Um, and I will say that, you know, 2011, it sounds tired to me too, but this is, I don't know, maybe at the early moment of all this. So it's tired now, but I do, you know, I, I, I didn't encounter this in 2011, but I wonder if I go back and listen and could listen to it then if it would sound like, uh, I don't know, fresh in some way or at least more exciting. Um, Drake was named, I toyed around with various themes around the same general idea, but he was named the number one artist of the decade by the billboard. Uh, Lord knows how they you know, what criteria or statistics they use anymore, or even how they calculate stuff, but he, he was number one. So if I Google that, do you want me to Google that real quick? Well, like, how sure. did they determine this criteria? Because I'm interested. <laughs> I don't even know if it says, but it does give you a top 10, and I know Drake is number one. Um, and if you look at any, like, decade assessment lists or metrics or whatever, Drake is going to be at the top or near it. Um, I mean, it's him, it's Adele, it's Taylor Swift. Uh, if you're looking purely at like success, um, you know, if you have more of a like cultural or an ideological, like who, who was most emblematic of the decade, Drake is still going to be on that list. Maybe he's not number one and you'll get some, some different choices, but I, I mean, he's kind of chalk across most of them. So like there is, he's had a substantial impact and I don't hate him. Uh, I don't hate this album. 
Uh, I just don't particularly have any feelings, and that's kind of the theme. Um, I think, you know, what you said is interesting about, right, we, you know, bros, we can have feelings. You know, I've talked about that with Coldplay is a good example before. <laughs> like, if you uh-huh. can just get people into a room uh-huh. and feeling so, like, far be it from me to diss that. And I'm not going to, but I don't... I don't know. I get sick of it with Drake, I guess. Um, the pool blurb for the Pitchfork review of this says that he's an apt avatar for the era of reality reality TV and 24-hour self-documentation. Um, and I think that's it. Like what stops me from feeling like fully invested in this. Not that that's the point. No one cares if I'm invested or not, but like... It's it moves from like let's feel together to just pure navel gazing, um, and I I don't know man seventy five minutes of that I I'm hard pressed to take it, um, so like that which is like Drake Drake's thing, he's the vanguard of that now he's picking up from so Kanye, more or less kickstarts this with eight oh eights and heartbreak in two thousand eight I think it is. Um, it's well documented that Drake, like that's kind of his Bible in a, not directly necessarily, but implicitly, um, you have him kid Cudi sort of messes around with it, but then Drake takes this model of like hip hop, R and B, a smooth mixture. Um, I don't find any of it particularly like totally compelling, but it's good mixes throughout, uh, and then confessional, for drake a mix of rapping and singing and he has a nice voice um much better than kanye's certainly so like it works um and i get it from a genre perspective that there is a smooth kind of harmony um it does sound as tim said like it's tired now because so many people do it but like drake is really setting this up and running with it um i would also be remiss to forget to mention again that dmx is kind of at the vanguard of this like confessional thing now drake and dmx are talking about very different things but (laughs) something i wanted to mention last week and forgot was that you can see dmx is kind of a figurehead of this well what if we use the album as like a giant confessional space um religiously or not um and as you know, kind of here are scenes from my diary or the, or the life of whomever. Um, other rappers have done that to some degree, but DMX's authenticity really stood out. So I think you can draw a line from there to here. Um, but Drake is really setting this up for the 2010s and I think continuing into the 2020s. Um, I'm imagining this... <laughs> this Drake DMX thing, like someone just listening to the two of them being like, I can't tell which is which. (laughs) Uh, What if DMX had a guest spot on take care? That would have been good. (laughs) It was interesting that you mentioned Marvin Gaye too, because Marvin's room, I believe is a somewhat of an homage to Marvin Gaye. Like I thought it was, I thought it was the, the movie that I've never seen. Both the, Maybe Drake is, is incredibly. Both? Maybe Drake is incredibly intertextual. Because I've been using, I've never seen Marvin's Room the movie, but I've been mm-hmm. using it in the movie game to get Leonardo DiCaprio, <laughs> Robert De Niro, and Meryl Streep all in one go for for years. Mm-hmm. So 
I, Maybe I, I should think... see it. <laughs> that probably makes more sense. I thought it was... I sort of heard it as like a, not interpolation, but kind of a reference to like some of Marvin Gaye's later, like the post-divorce stuff. Um, and just the incredible like emotional vulnerability of that. That could be like a music critic thing more than a like Drake was actually thinking it thing. Um, anyway, interesting that you mentioned him all the same because you can read some Marvin Gaye into this. Drake is not as talented as Marvin Gaye, but we move on. Did you find <laughs> that list? <laughs> yeah, so I um I did I did figure out what the what the honor is based on according to the Seattle News website. Um, based on the activity on the Hot 100 Songs chart, the Billboard 200 albums tally, social media data, touring revenue reported to Billboard box score over a 10-year period. So all of that stuff, especially now, like, uh, take it with a, a grain of salt, but that's a fairly solid like assessment criteria i think um i mean the list made sense when i saw it anyway i was like yeah these are 10 artists that like if you just told me name the top 10 of the decade like i'd probably come up with most of them in some order <laughs> have we ever talked about how i was on the academic challenge team with the guy who's an editor at billboard now no <laughs> just that's what i think about with billboard i'm like oh yeah that's where jason lipschitz works <laughs> once upon a time we answered trivia questions together with buzzers i'm sorry his last name is lipschitz lipschitz oh i was really no not like that (laughs) no he was on the team with with my older brother too he he like crossed eras so like (laughs) the two of them somehow (laughs) like these these professional writing careers and like the rest of us are just normal people it's very very funny he crossed the errors of Bauman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Poor guy. He sure did. <laughs> um, uh, I don't know, man. There's another thing about this album where I just kind of like the guest spots more. <laughs> like what on than him? Yeah. Yes, yeah. That was something that stood out to me too. It was like the guest spots themselves had more personality than which is like not the. I don't know. That's not shocking to me that they would have more no. personality than the than the artist. But like, just hearing Nicki Minaj on that on that one, I forget which one that even is. But like, when that's Nicki Minaj shows up, let's make me proud on "Make Me Proud." Like the the part with Drake on "Make Me Proud," I'm like, all right, I guess we're doing this. And then Nicki Minaj shows up, I'm like, oh, well, this is different at least. Like that's a little punch. Nick Nicki has a great verse. Uh... Andre steals the show per usual. It's so sad. The Andre 3000 verse is so sad. I know, but he's so damn good. His, um, uh, Kendrick's here. Um, Birdman has a fun little part. I won't say it's good, but it's fun. Um, the weekend before he becomes full weekend. Um, Rihanna is Rihanna. Like, there's, there's good guest spots across this. Rick Ross shows up. Um, that was another one where, like, I'm not the world's biggest Rick Ross guy, just like I'm not the world's biggest Nicki Minaj guy, but it was different. Like, there was a counterpoint to the way Drake yeah. sounds, because they're both su- such, like, aggressive and uh, 
performers and they both are unmistakably them the whole time. And like, it does, it does give a breath of fresh air, even if you're like, okay, this is the not as interesting part of the album. They're both very heavy presences. And I think that's a good juxtaposition to Drake, who is, um, I say this genuinely with respect because we know the music I listen to. He's kind of a weenie, I think, for most of this. Um, Was going to call him the waterbed of hip hop. (laughs) Ooh, I like that. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I don't like, I tend to like the guest spots more or even on, um, uh, on practice. I think it's on practice. Um, Drake is directly referencing juveniles back that ass up and like kind of jacks the flow a little bit but it just makes me want to listen to juvenile um so i look i i do feel like i'm being a little too mean to him here like i don't dislike this necessarily or him it just doesn't really like i don't really feel anything um i tried to (laughs) so i sent a question out to because I work with a lot of youth um, to them and tried to figure out, I just wanted them to tell me like, why, why is Drake good? And no one took me up on that. So if you're listening, you're all cowards, but um, <laughs> I, no one wants to go to that for Drake. <laughs> I know. It was sad. Um, uh, I did rope in some other folks I know to give me some sense and like, I do think there is genuinely something to like how much he releases like that's exciting for people. And there's always something new to listen to. Um, No one really mentioned the genre blending, but I think that's part of it. And I think the easiest way to assess that is just like the right. Tim's reaction that it sounds like everything else right now. Like there's something there. Um, I think the confessional stuff works. Like people do kind of want to feel with Drake and Either that or they just want to hear him be aggressively horny. Either way. Um, But I think, like, right, there is a sort of intimacy to it that is um, appealing. Um, I do think some people like his flow or his smoothness or at least how he raps and sings. I don't get that one, but it's there. Um, So, like, right, I think there is a lot to like here. Um, I am just not someone who gets it. And that is kind of our theme for today. Um, But let me wrap up with some, well, I'll do some good and then go back to some bad. Um, I do think there are some cool melodies or beats here. We'll Be Fine has a nice little funk to it. Like, I like that one. Um, The loop on Lord Knows sounds like a revving jet engine, and I find that appealing. Um, Crew Love has a fun, like, EDM kind of loop and tie-in. You know, for the most part, it's, it's, like lonely sparse r&b stuff with some like club drops um but it's pretty lush production throughout so like musically i think it's i don't want like i don't find it exciting necessarily but i find it pleasant most of the time um like i think there's solid soundscapes to just kind of work through yeah the production on this is definitely good like Mm -hmm. that was that was something that i definitely thought about while i was listening it's like whether or not I am going to remember any of these lyrics for standing out, the, the way this sounds is is good for me. There's no badly made song on the thing. Like yeah, that's a good all, way to think of yeah, it. They're all fine, at least. Um, um, 
I think ultimately what like prevents me from connecting is that this is a kind of vulnerability commodified to the point that I just don't believe it anymore. And we're going to talk about that with the two replacement albums. But uh, before we do that, I want to invoke Tim. You'll enjoy this one. Sophie B. Hawkins. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Who was on 60 songs that explain the nineties. Uh, talking about Natalie and Bruglia's torn with <laughs> great song uh, with Rob Harvia. That's over on the ringer. Go listen to that. He's wrapping it up. It's very fun. Um, but he asks her a question about confessional songwriting with torn as kind of the example in the late nineties. <laughs> and Sophie reels off this gem. Uh, so she says about that kind of writing, uh, they've taken it to the limit. You just want to say, shut up. You don't even feel that. You're just trying to sound confessional. And Drake. I was going to, you know, that's that's interesting you used that. Because I was going to ask you if you thought that this was more confessional than Good Kid, Mad City. Uh, I think the difference is... I think there's different types of confessional and I sort of see Hawkins's point in that like Drake's is so incredibly insular most of the time. Like it is, I mean, usually it's about women, uh, like not in a violent way, just like he's usually sad or bemoaning or like saying lines to the effect of you'll remember me when you're with someone like stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, it's romantically involved. Um, Good Kid, Mad City, right? It's Kendrick's story, but the fact that you can take that album and make some, I don't mean to drag hip hop to the ivory tower with me, but like there's some sort of like sociopolitical context to that. Like it speaks to something larger, even if Kendrick's like it's Kendrick throughout. It's his story. Um, but I think there's just a sense of a world there in a way with Drake. It's more, I mean, look at the album cover. It's sort of like him lonely in his riches. Um, and he like, like the Taco he, Bell commercials. Yeah. And like, he digs into that a little bit on one of the later songs. He says, you know, say more money, more problems. Don't believe that I spent six, six million on myself and I feel fantastic. Like line, something like that. Like, like he understands he is like he, he is in a good spot. Um, <clears throat> but like, to me, that's the difference. So like literally no. Um, but I think what is being confessed hints at different things. Like for Drake, I think it's always about Drake for Kendrick. It's Kendrick's story, but it speaks for other things for other people. Um, I think that's like the general take up of them anyway. I'm not necessarily giving my own like read of both here. <laughs> no, the way, I, the way I sort of come down and I, I think you are probably, probably right there. You have redirected the thought I was having, but basically it feels like good kid, mad city is way more personal and I am significantly more interested mm-hmm. in that personal expression than I am in the confessional expression. There's just more to work from. Yeah. And, and I mean, talent aside, like it's not a question of which one's the, 
the better writer, the better rapper, whatever. But like speaking in virtually any uh, genre or, or medium of art, I feel like I would rather get something personal than confessional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I agree with that. And, you know, I was going to bring this up for the second replacement because it's going to be even more on the nose. But look, everyone, <laughs> I we know the stuff I listen to. I'm aware of how I'm throwing stones in glass houses for most of this. <laughs> but bear with me. Um, um, I will say though, like Kendrick's a better writer and uh, rapper. Drake's a better pop artist, and like I say that with no ill will or or disparaging tone to it. Like he is, and good for him. Like. I begrudge no artist their success. So, uh, Drake, number one Billboard artist of the decade. Anything else you want to say on Take Care? <laughs> no, just that the boys are back in town by Thin Lizzy strikes me as a piece <laughs> of personal songwriting rather than confessional <laughs> songwriting. Oh, man, I wish I could talk about Thin Lizzy on this. <laughs> <laughs> Damn my own parameters. Um The theme for Take Care is, we could express it in a number of different ways, but let's say popular 2010s artists that I've ignored or just don't understand. Um, I think don't understand is the better language here. For me, Uh, it's ignored. So I think think you can say don't understand. I have actively, until I listen (laughs) to these, I actively ignored them. All right, so popular, not just popular, like seminal 2010s artists that uh, Tim and I have ignored and or don't understand. Um, Tim will get to choose which album best suits that theme based on the arguments presented. And all of the chosen albums head to their subtitles replacement list. And remember, the goal is not to choose the work that's best or most important, but to choose the one that best suits the theme. Uh, the two options today, I'll tell you this, and then Tim, I got a question for you, are Lana Del Rey's 2014 album, Ultraviolence. And then I it's one of those episodes where I have to break my parameters just a little bit, so I have a slightly newer album, and that's Father John Misty's Pure Comedy, which came out in 2017. I've had a, one or two other 2017 show up in the stream of this, so uh, a little bit after the spin list, but I make exceptions occasionally. Um Tim, mm-hmm. what do you want me to argue? <laughs> I find myself struggling with that part. Like, what do you want to base this on, given the theme? Yeah, so... I think if if we look at it for Don't Get, I think the, I think the central issue here, like what I would be deciding based on, is how clearly do I see your confusion? Where does okay. the confusion okay. stem from? How do I, how can I relate right. to the confusion? That general, that general that, area. All right. That makes sense. We can do that. Um, for the folks at home, I have a bunch of notes. Like I have analyses of this album, of these albums, but um, yeah, the specific way to direct albums you don't understand is kind of hard. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, let's start with Lana Del Rey. Uh, 2014's Ultraviolence. I can do this whole album already, by the way. 
Oh, that's right. You have thoughts. Do you want to do this one first or second then? No, no. Let's do this first because I actually, I mean, when I say I can do the whole album, I can actually perform the entire album. (laughs) The floor is yours. Okay. So the first part is me being Lana Del Rey and the second part (laughs) is me being a guitar. So first part. (laughs) And then the second part is the guitar going. It's like that for like an hour. How is that a whole album? Uh, so our second option is Father John Misty's Pure Comedy. I can do a slightly <laughs> slightly longer version of that. but well, Hang on to it. Hang on to it's it. It's the same thing. <laughs> I think the guitar has a little more spunk in that one, though. Um, <laughs> um, ultraviolence. It is sombulent in a word. Um didactic (laughs) incredibly long (laughs) you got any favorites here you know it's interesting because i did listen to all of this in a go um and (laughs) yeah well (laughs) you know sometimes these things happen and the last song on this the other woman i actually thought was like fairly interesting and i kind of enjoyed that one um Mm -hmm. it had a little bit more verve to it it had something something approaching like an emotional feeling that wasn't just boy i have sex and drugs and those make me sad and the men i have sex and drugs with are also sad like that one the other woman felt felt like it had personality i was like where was this and i understand this is actually something worth talking about because I got Mm -hmm. help from my wife for these because she listens to (laughs) Lana Del Rey and to Father John Misty. And she wants to report that you have chosen the most boring albums that they have. Should I defend myself now? I mean, I I feel like for Lana Del Rey, I think we both agree this one's not compelling. (laughs) I I do actually have some parts that I think are compelling. The reason I chose these two are because they are the like major moments where these two become critical figures. So Uh, as opposed to just being like audience favorites. So I didn't choose the most interesting. The people who listen to these two chose the most boring ones. That's a sick burn. So shove it. Um, I will say, uh, I would also hear a case in that same vein for Norman fucking Rockwell, but that came out in 2019, and that was a little bit too late for that one. Own, that one is my own later. Um, so I would accept either, but ultraviolence and pure comedy to me are like when these two become figures for analysis beyond even musicians. So blame yourselves, people who actually like these. That's. I think that's a very. It's a very good rejoinder, and I don't want to make this. Uh, I don't want to make this about critics, but I've been thinking about critics a lot more than usual recently, and trying to decide. <laughs> don't we do that anyway? No, no. I more than usual, and one of my favorite games are which critics are the biggest suckers, and TV mm. critics are number one. There's there's just no challenge to TV critics, and. I don't know. I just looked through the through the notes on like Take Care and was like, how many music critics are just really big marks? I wonder. 
that one's interesting to me because I think the thing with music criticism is that it turns over so much more quickly mm. that mm-hmm. like, yeah, they're marks, but it's also like what hits you and like the young overtake the old much more quickly in music criticism than other forms. So which in a sense is me agreeing. Yeah. Like the marks take over and they start writing about the things that were important to them. But um, in another sense, it's like, I don't think they're being fooled. Like, I think there's genuine like like and feeling behind a lot of what music critics are doing. Um, you know, the flip side of this actually, now that it occurs to me, occurs to me later than it should. It's just like, if it's TV or music, there's too much of it, so you have to talk mm-hmm. about things you like, or otherwise there's no point in like trying to keep up. You can't possibly yeah. do it all. You have to have a niche, otherwise it's just like, you can't be Chris Gow anymore. <laughs> um, who, I mean, is a singular figure in terms of his style anyway, but like he would take on kind of everything, and like you just can't do it. You have access to everything now, so there's so much of it, and like you can get any of it if you want to. So, um, yeah, that's a good point. There's just, you have to have some kind of field. Um, yeah. Um, all right. If you look at any review website, like as long as they have multiple writers, like those writers will have kind of the things that they do. Um, you might have a couple like bigger names or more tenured people who do sort of a generalist thing, but, um, largely, you know, it is, like you have your little tent and you're going to write about those albums. So like that impacts things too. Um, um, Pitchfork for what it's worth, I think is actually lower on a lot of the Del Rey albums than most outlets. So that's interesting. It's funny you say that because I am looking at the Pitchfork review right now. They gave it a 7.1. I think most of her, so the first album born to die gets like a five or something. Um, they pan that one in later reviews too. Like, I think it comes up in the ultraviolence one that the first one sucked. <laughs> um, and then most of hers get like a seven something besides Norman fucking Rockwell, which got like a nine five or something like that. So mm. for the most part, they have her in the sevens, which is sort of the pitchfork dead zone. Um, and the same is true for father John Misty. Actually, when we get to him, he actually has two that are rated pretty highly. And then everything else is like, sevens ish so i think the other thing that stood out to me from this album now that i think we're talking about this album is that when i was listening to it it sounded it like the the mean thought i had was it sounds like a like an album length tryout for the next bond theme like that was what a lot of this sort of spoke to me but i'm looking at this pitchfork review and they had a similar thing they're comparing um shades of cool to nancy sinatra's you only live twice so like apparently i'm not alone here that feels nice um and then billy eilish got it anyway um you can't you get turns over it turns over so fast that's what i'm saying um that another artist i don't understand but I wouldn't put her in a category like this because I don't think there's any reason anyone expects me to. This thing with Lana Del Rey and Father John Misty in particular, like by all rights, I should really like them. I well, those moment- those three are kind of frustrating. I don't think Billie Eilish is all that frustrating to me. I kind of, yeah. I understand what she's going for more. I, I, that, and I think there's just like, I'm removed enough from 
what Billie Eilish is doing that like I can just like yeah it's not frustrating but I don't listen to her and be like there's so many reference points in here I understand and now I'm mad mm-hmm. but I do mm-hmm. that with with these two yeah um, like with Lana Del Rey I had thoughts throughout this album which I called you a trooper but I actually listened to the deluxe version because I hate myself um that's the one on Spotify right I'm pretty aren't they we have to t- we have to talk to Spotify about how when you're searching for these, <laughs> yeah. the only things that come up are the deluxe versions. Like, it's I'm not. Th- <laughs> it's only three extra songs, but it felt like five hours. Um, <laughs> actually, no, well, no, the the three extras like they're different enough that they like had some energy at the end. But anyway, um, different artists I thought of throughout this: Sharon Van Etten, Saint Vincent. Uh, hooray for the riffraff um who else did i have written down here modest mouse (laughs) um of course there's like a velvet underground kind of thing that's i think biblical for her uh beach house slow dive like all thing all bands all artists that i love and that we've talked about and that we've talked about and this does jack shit for me um (laughs) Her singing, if we call it that, Tim modeled it so well. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's just, I wrote down, it's peak whisper shit. Um, and for the most part, <laughs> it is. And for the most part, the, beat, <laughs> the beats just kind of lurch forward. Um, lurch is a really great yeah. verb for this album. Sometimes that does work for me. Like, I kind of like what Cruel World is up to. Yes. Um, there's a, I don't, there's sort of a, um, I don't know, a danger in kind of that, the music to that one that I think works and juxtaposes really well to her whisper. And I think that's the key. That's what's missing for me. Most of the time it's that there's nothing I, there is occasionally, but like, there's nothing that serves as the counterpoint to her sombulence. Um, and when there is, man, there's actually some good moments. I think Dan Auerbach produces this, who is the singer and guitarist for the Black Keys, another band I really like. And he's on one here. Like, I think he's doing a great job, but it's uh, there's some really interesting landscapes here, but that not often enough do they cut against what Lana Del Rey's style is. Um, um, but like West Coast is a good example. I think that pushes against her delivery. Like the, the music is edgy or cagey enough that it, it like serves as a good counter to what she's up to. Um, Pretty When You Cry does something interesting where it pushes her voice really forward in the mix. Mm-hmm. And I think I found that really compelling. Like she's not buried beneath noise, uh, but it like, it's a similar song structure, but you can just tell in the mix that she's really forward. And I found that little trick interesting. Um, Cruel World, we mentioned, I really like that one. It has some Ben Howard to it, another person I love. Um, it teases a huge like pop breakdown that never comes, and I'm 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 a mark for that move. Um, and I think throughout, like she does have some some fun lines and imagery. Not to keep harping on Cruel World, but I like that one, uh, especially like get a little suburban and go crazy, and the wah wah effect behind that is ominous and that when i say modest mouse like there's some cowboy dan shit to that um 
so like there's moments across this one that I actually find compelling or like when Auerbach decides, yes, guitar solo time. Um, like I can see something here, but overall, like it just does not come together. And there's so many cool reference points, but it just, they sound like that. Like they're just kind of like Drake, like they make me think of someone else. And then I just want to listen to that person. So what I don't understand is like how, <clears throat> You have all of these cool moments and artists that you're speaking to, speaking with. Cat Power is another one who Lana Del Rey has collaborated with a number of times. And they're, uh, uh, fuck my way up to the top and like old money. You can kind of hear Cat Power uh, voice in that. Um, but like she has all of these great reference points and things that she could build from, but it just never sounds it does sound different. It sounds like her, like she has a style, but the style just does not make sense given all that it's coming from. Um, I have another, oh, well, if we just want to finish this out, you can hear St. Vincent on Shades of Cool, uh, Sharon Van Etten's kind of delivery, hush delivery throughout, um, Wolf Alice a lot on Guns and Roses. That's one of the bonus songs though. Um, Again, so many great, like, I can hear this in here, but I just don't get, like, what Lana Del Rey's thing is. Um, <clears throat> though, uh, my favorite quip, the person I'll, I'll leave anonymous, but they said, is this something that only 16-year-old girls in the bedroom can understand? <laughs> no. I, th- I, think <laughs> it's, I think it's aiming... It's aiming older too, but like mm-hmm. maybe maybe this is I don't know the the L A on this, and I say mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. instead of Los Angeles because I want to try to be like a little denigrating. Is like the L A on this is also you can only understand this if you mm-hmm. live in like Beverly Hills or something like that. I don't know. The problem. The song I want to treat as a microcosm, and here's ultimately why I don't understand Lana Del Rey as an artist, is Brooklyn Baby, mm. which has mm-hmm. an entire chorus about, you know, sitting in a Brooklyn in a apartment, feathers in your hair, listening to Lou, Lou Reed, doing drugs. Tim captured her essence, but like, it is what I suspect is supposed to be a satirical vision of this kind of... Uh, um, posing exploitative hip, hipster persona. I'm not convinced that's not Lana Del Rey though. Like that's the image of her I have in my head. So that song really cuts against her if she's trying to do something ironic or detached there. Uh, and to me, that's a again kind of a microcosm of the whole thing. It's like Lana Del Rey is presenting this vision. And I think she thinks it's satirical, but it's just the stuff that I imagine her as. And I, I like, I don't get why that becomes popular then. So something that I've been thinking about for all of these people is that they have very, except, I mean, Drake is not really that Baroque, but like there's these, mm. these goofy, um, goofy stage names that all of them have. Mm-hmm. And again, like, I understand why he didn't want to be Aubrey Gordon 
for <laughs> as like a rapper. I can understand how that double first name is not quite as good as Kendrick Lamar. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, or Dwayne Carter, how many of them are there? <laughs> that's gonna bother me maybe you should think about that and i'll i'll do this but like drake is like give him a stage name that's fine but like does this album make more or less sense could you could you imagine satire in an album like this if it were by lizzie grant i i think i could um some of her later albums they get tied to or called like California Gothic or something to that effect. And like, there is that sort of Gothic quality to them. And I think that could be used for satire. Um, <clears throat> I think it, it could be. My problem is just that, or my lack of understanding is that the image I have of Lana Del Rey is what the satire is about. And I understand that she's doing a character here. Like father John Misty is doing a character when we get to him, but there's no separation between the thing being, or there's no obvious separation between the things being critiqued and understanding of the person making the music. And like, that's where it falls for me. So like, I think it could be done not by her. And so as much as there's in here to like, and as many, Uh, you know, as many sh- shoulders as she rubs next to in terms of style or delivery or just kind of song uh, songs that she's making. I think it's the image of the character Lana Del Rey is just inescapable. And so, like, I don't understand how this comes together in the end. Um, anything else you want to say about do you have more impressions? No, no, that's <laughs> It's an album that only lends itself to a single impression. <laughs> oh, no, I do have yeah, something to okay, say. Okay, so I okay. I don't... Did you know that Dan Auerbach is related to Willard Van Orman Quine? No. <laughs> like, distant, kind of distantly related, <laughs> but apparently, like, Robert Quine is his uncle or something. And then... You mean Robert Quine? <laughs> who did I say? No, you said it right. I was doing the Archer joke. Oh, God. Anyway. (laughs) It's what happens when I learn something recently and I'm self-conscious. But yes, apparently, like, he's a couple generations removed from Willard Van Orman Quine, and that is the weirdest thing I've heard this week. Huh. Just to reiterate, Dan Auerbach doing some good work on this. (laughs) And apparently related to fun people. Um father john misty oh god (laughs) deep breath so i can start here too because i think we're doing that now um so i was just sort of listening to this one casually i didn't i didn't work on this one the same way that i worked on ultra violence and i was sitting around doing something else and leaving la was on and Mm. i was like i've heard This little melody repeat itself a lot. How long have I been listening to this song? (laughs) And it turned out I had been listening to that song for like eight minutes. And then not only had I listened to the song for like eight minutes, I had another five to go. And I'm not against long songs. Goodness knows I'm a 
a great fan of many lengthy numbers, but just I was like, it's not even doing anything different. It's just repeating the same little, like mm-hmm. the little hook over and over again. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> All right. I, I gave a version of this caveat before, but your your mention of long songs makes it even more pertinent. Uh, I listened to emo whole bunch of overwrought emotional Mm -hmm. uh, like attempting to make that philosophical i listen to a great number of misanthropic bands i listen to fucking tool i love all of them i acknowledge i am throwing the stones in a glass house (laughs) um all of these things have had a profound effect on me and i love turgid stuff we know my (laughs) we know my things um but the first time I heard this album, my eyes fell out of my skull. <laughs> I I can't. I can't with the ironic postmodern detachment of it all. I can't with the the opening uh, titular track that is basically humans, eh? Don't we all suck? And like, let's thumb my nose at God. You can't do that at the beginning. You haven't earned it. Um, I the pseudo, not pseudo nihilistic, but the nihilistic pseudo philosophy across this whole thing of like what ills us. I just can't, man. <laughs> I'm so tired. I, there's no, save for a few small moments. There's no upshot. And I resent that it was around this album, and that's why I chose it, that Father John Misty got held up as, like, this is the great American songwriter of the moment. Wait, he did what? I felt like critics were holding him up after this one as, like, this is the, like, this is the songwriter of the moment. I mean, you would know better than I do, but why, why did they think that? I think because this album, do you have a joke here? No, no, I'm like genuinely like I know this is this is my this is my joke tone of voice, but I just heard something ridiculous. This guy was the one they picked. I felt like it to me. Um, I you know I read a lot of rock critics. I don't like I don't. Okay, let's take this back a second. Father John Misty is nowhere near the level of popular as like Drake. But in, well, who can be as popular as the as Billboard's top <laughs> artist of the 2010s? <laughs> um, very good point. Um, so like, okay, caveat there. But in the like rock and indie stuff that I read, this was a big moment, and part of that is Father John Misty is great on press, mostly because he's a an abiding troll, and so no one can get enough of it. Um. I suppose that's kind of the historical thing to me, though. Like, right, this is 2017. We know what happened in 2016. And for someone to be so cavalier about press, about interviews, to be kind of like verbal clickbait, like he had a bunch of great pull quotes in this time, um, and to release something so anguished and misanthropic and pseudo-philosophical in 2017, right, it, it kind of hits a perfect moment for itself. Um but there are a lot of people who who believe in his songwriting ability, and, and I can see it on other albums. 
Like, I love you. Honey Bear got a lot of great review and press. And I think deservedly so, because that's actually digging into something interesting and worthwhile. Um, it's an assessment of love and gender and breakups. And it's actually like re attempting to rethink its own masculinity in ways that maybe we say Drake is like, there's something interesting happening there. Um, but this is just a giant, because I work on all this material, I find the ones that try to ironically detach and have no upshot, the most frustrating. And that is ultimately what I don't understand. Like why in the hell did this become sort of a grand statement of where we are? You know, the thing about 16-year-old girls in their bedroom, <laughs> he looks like the kind of poster that 16-year-old girls put up in their bedroom, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, it's a little too old for them, especially post-Fleet Foxes. The the beard and the hair are like, mm-hmm. they're, they're kind of obviously quaffed, but they are still messy enough that you can pretend they're not. That's what... Uh, Good mention. I forgot about it. Uh, for anyone listening who doesn't know, Father John Misty, actual name Josh Tillman, was the drummer in Fleet Foxes at the very beginning of their career <laughs> and has broken off to have, again, I don't begrudge anyone their success. I think he has some interesting stuff elsewhere. I just don't get this album. Um, but yeah, drummer of seminal experimental folk band tries to do it solo to not as good results yeah <laughs> I think he, I, again I think, this... he's a, I think he's a more interesting person than peckled and that like helps him stay uh in the consciousness but uh the mute like fleet fox's music is just more interesting yeah the josh tillman do you do you give josh tillman credit for being a troll and sort of being angry and ironic and and distant distant and safe i think is a good way to put it and like is that a thing josh tillman can do or is that a thing that father john misty can do uh right even more so than lana del rey like father john misty is a character and i think this album is sort of the the largest statement of the character itself whereas i think when for me anyway when he's more successful is when it's josh tillman uh like maybe there's a little bit of Misty in there, but it's him actually reflecting on and trying to analyze the personal, right? We go back to the personal here. So like that happens on I Love You, Honey Bear, um, God's Favorite Customer, which is not an album I've dug into a ton, but like that's a post-divorce thing. So that seems to be happening more there. Like he's just more interesting when you get Josh Tillman rather than the character. Um Again, I'm not at all opposed to character studies in general, um, but this one, there's no, there's no humanness to it. I think that's ultimately what bothers me and makes me not understand. Um, although I guess as I'm talking, we're finding out I have some vitriol towards this thing. I just um, say you seem a lot angrier yeah, again than that. you do it at <laughs> Lizzie back there. I think right, that's the. Um, the Farnsworth quote, you people and your slight differences disgust me. Um, this thing is engaged with a kind of performative postmodern, postmodernity thing. And right, that's real close to so much stuff that I do. But the thing missing, I think, is the 
okay, yeah, it's all the, the whole thing is a crock of shit, but we have to find out actually <laughs> we have to find out how to actually live in that. The whole thing meaning the world, not this album. Um and I just I like I don't think pure comedy gives us that moment. Um there are little moments of increased self-consciousness on a bigger paper bag. He has a nice image that's something like uh you're my mirror but remember i only like i only see what i want to or like i something about the framing and like it's this on the first line like this kind of great intimate image and then ultimately like goes right back to him how you know manipulative and controlling he can be um so there are there are fine little moments like that it's when it's doing its grand philosophical visions that like it, it, those can work sometimes like things that would have been helpful to know before the revolution actually has this compelling imagery of um, basically global warming in full effect the after and then eventually like there is some harmony in the world cools and it's like that's the little moment of humaneness that this needs more of um, the music again very well produced throughout like it's usually pretty lush and warm. There are some some really cool like orchestral moments or just full band uh, breakdowns. I mean, for the most part, you're getting you know accomplished folksy stuff, um, but that can be really good and really pleasant. And like I do think the music across is solid. Um, you know, I he there's a problem with length as there is on all three of these albums, um, especially with something like Leaving L.A where you just want more of those moments that break things up, but he does provide them elsewhere. So like, I think the band here is pretty, pretty tight and pretty accomplished. Um, you know, I mentioned there are some, some, some little moments of like, okay, here's a compelling image or like, here's some, something human to break this up. Um, um, Ballad of a Dying Man, Birdie, um, Revolution, like they all have these great heavy orchestral drops there's interesting stuff happening throughout. Like you can hear how he comes from fleet foxes and it's kind of doing something new. His voice is pleasant. Like I definitely don't hate his voice. Um, but I don't, I don't think there's any great like subversion of genre happening here. There doesn't have to be, but like that would have been something else that makes it interesting or more compelling. Well, if you're going to be, happening. if you're going to be that ironic and, you know, detached, as we've said, then you need, you probably need to be a little more creative musically than you are trying out to be. Yeah. um, But I just like kind of adding to like the music sounds good throughout, but it's not doing anything like new necessarily. Uh, I do think he's a serviceable writer, solid writer. It's just the topics of interest here. I don't find that compelling. Um, Again, the singing solid throughout. Like, I think you can hear in all of it. Like, yes, this is a good artist. This is someone who who knows what they're doing. But there's not that moment of like, okay, well, what's the great insight here, or what's the great subversion that makes this such a seminal album of the decade, one that appeared on so many year end lists on so many decade lists. Like, that's the thing I'm not getting, and I've presented in anger my thinkings for it. But I really just don't, I don't understand why this is the one. If this, if it was, I love you, honey bear or God's favorite dealer. I think I said customer earlier. Um, 
like if the, if one of those was the one and maybe they are now like maybe we're enough removed that one of those will take over i would get that more but this is one i kind of like i don't get the full love of father john misty in general but it's this album in particular i'm just like i don't know what what we took up here why we ran with this one yeah we listened to um i love you honey bear a little bit when we were fooling around with with pure comedy and that one that one i got more that one Mm -hmm. felt like i could like place it a little bit more it felt more fun like Mm -hmm. it it felt it like entertaining is the wrong word but it was like easier to get into it and Mm -hmm. i liked that about it i'm like this one i sort of understand what the what the thing is that people like about him Mm -hmm. but I feel like a lot of us can sort of play guitar in a loop for 13 minutes. Right. On pure comedy, he's trying to do some like, I don't know, like Don DeLillo or David Foster Wallace thing. (laughs) Misses what actually makes those guys smart. (laughs) Um, And I find Foster Wallace as frustrating as the next guy, but like, his nonfiction makes clear that there's something deeper there. And I just don't get that on pure comedy, save for very small moments. Um, so yeah. Anything else you want to say about the, uh, the folk hero of our generation? <laughs> well, it's, you know, you stick the, the pros in front of somebody and you say, now is this Don DeLillo or father John Misty? And it's just as confusing as the Drake DMX question. <laughs> It's it's so hard to tell. Uh, it's very I, very tired, very I, tired and hard. And... I, I forgive anyone who can't tell. Um, anything else you got? You ready for spiel? I don't know that I have a long spiel. I'm trying to not be angry for the rest of this because that's not the point. <laughs> no, I actually, and I even know which one I'm going with. So if you want to do right. the the brevity spiel, we can we can go that way. All right, so our entry today, oh God, I never checked. What is it, 63 on yeah. the spin list? Thank yeah. you. Um, uh-huh. uh, is Drake's Take Care, his 2011 uh, album, major success as are most Drake albums, number one artist of, of the decade, um, and led off with the theme of popular 2010, seminal 2010s artists that we either have ignored or just don't understand um it's hard to ignore drake but i i don't get it um and i've presented tim with lana del rey's ultraviolence and father john misty's pure comedy which i'm told are the two most boring choices for these two artists but (laughs) i I, they were moments of great critical focus and they remain think piece worthy albums for different reasons um with Lana Del Rey, or with Ultraviolence in particular, some really cool moments, uh, especially when the music cuts against her whispers and her very lethargic delivery, um, when there's something kind of cutting or edgy underneath it. Um, and so many great reference points and other people that you can hear in it, but the image of Lana Del Rey does not overcome the 
ostensible character study that's happening on ultraviolence. It's really hard to see the separation between the two. And for that reason, I just, I don't understand why it became, why she became like one of these seminal artists. Likewise, Father John Misty, uh, who by all accounts I should adore. Um, but he, he, I understand why the album is so talked about, but it's missing the like, the core of humanness that would make the statement actually resonate. Um, and there's nothing like it's good throughout, but there's nothing all that new or inventive happening. Um, so I find it to be kind of a tired retread of a lot of different things um, that, you know, can be pleasant enough. And father John Misty has proved elsewhere that he can do some good and more interesting things. Uh, but that pure comedy becomes this moment of great focus, uh, of of great success, of great praise. I don't understand that because I don't know what it's doing different from some of his other stuff or what really sets it apart from you know, 2017. Like, I think there was a lot of great music that year. So why this one comes out, I think, is more a historical nihilism than anything. Um, yeah, Tim. So I'm I'm running off the the confusion. This seems so confusing, and when I think of confusion, I think of analytic philosophy, and <laughs> that's not why I'm picking ultraviolence. But like the reason I'm picking ultra, go I did ahead. So well, not going into that, and you just broke the end of the episode. Mm-hmm. So the reason I'm picking ultraviolence is is because I do think that there is this disconnect between like what this album could have been if it leaned in little itty bitty directions somewhere else. Right. Like what if Dan Auerbach had, who again, I think we agree produces Mm -hmm. this pretty well. What if it, Mm -hmm. what if he pushed for it to be livelier or what if Lana Del Rey was doing something more like what Sharon Bennett does, like a person who, I've come to like really enjoy after listening to her stuff and, and it's close. It's like the, the raw materials are not so different, but the final product is just, is just so far away. And yet I think ultraviolence does compel people. I'm less confused about father John Misty. Like it was 2017 and all the good liberals were mad that Donald Trump existed. And, I feel like that's that's easier to explain away if not explain well. This one this one I think is a is a more confusing text. There's just a lot more in it that why 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 is it like this? <laughs> why when it is almost so many other very interesting things, why does it fill this particular spot instead of being at least as good as this particular St. Vincent mm-hmm. idea. Why is it going this direction? It makes a lot of sense to me. Um, yeah. I don't think I have any, I think I do find myself like, I want to like ultraviolence more than I do at some moments, pure comedy. I can kind of go through and I'm like, yeah, I don't really need this. Um, so to me, I think that uh, that does add for the confusion a little bit as well. Um, uh, but yeah, I think that makes sense. And 
God help us, I have to rank ultraviolence. <laughs> no, probably be right next to in rainbows or something <laughs> it's going to be right after the miseducation of lauren hill of course yeah it was my other choice yeah. <laughs> um anything else you got for the people tim no no i've said a lot about music and it makes me uncomfortable should we leave them with the the top 10 of the in billboards estimation of the 2010s i actually think that's useful there's someone on there who i forgot existed a little bit and i was like oh yeah anyway yeah maybe i should have done this earlier but i, I think it's fun because i toyed around with using this list as the theme and i don't know i don't think i talk about too many 2010s like actual popular artists so let's let's here we go, folks. And you guys can play the game at home of who did Tim forget existed. Mm. All right. Number one. I guess we should start at one since we already know it. Number one is Drake. Dr. Ake. Dr. 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 Aubrey. Um, uh, number two, Taylor Swift. Shocker. I know. Number three, Bruno Mars. Number four, Rihanna. Number five, Adele. Number six, Ed Sheeran. Number seven, Justin Bieber. Number eight, Katy Perry. Uh, Number nine, Maroon 5. And number 10, Post Malone. Actually, let's keep going. Number 11, Lady Gaga. Number 12, Ariana Grande. Number 13, Imagine Dragons. Number 14, The Weeknd. And number 15, Nicki Minaj. I kept going because those last two are also on the Drake album, so it felt topical. (laughs) The one I forgot existed, Bruno Mars. Mm. Just did not remember that he was a person. <laughs> he makes exceedingly catchy and pleasant music that is not memorable other than that. It just sticks in your head for decades. <laughs> but like he himself, it, I know nothing about Bruno Mars. <laughs> um, all right. Thank you all for listening. Um, this was one of those... Uh, I don't know, rarer and weirder episodes where it's built out of things that Tim and I look at and just kind of go, huh? Um, But it's been fun. It's been fun. Thank you. Um, If you want to check out more about us, who we are, what we do, read our blogs, uh, check out his letterbox, my playlists, or whatever else he's up to. He's much more active than I am. Um, And if you want to check out back episodes of the podcast, of which there are many, please go to our website, subtitlespodcast.com. And please do stay tuned for the next episode where uh, Tim will be talking about one of the great Western directors after we've talked about, of course, the America's preeminent Western singer-songwriter and Lana Del Rey.